How can the field of communication and media studies push the boundaries towards more transnational scholarship? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Raquel Moreira in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today Raquel Moreira. Raquel is assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Southwestern University. Uh, before that, she was both assistant and associate professor of communication in the humanities division at Graceland University. She got her PhD at the University of Denver in communication studies. And before that, she got a master's at Federal Fluminense University in Brazil, media studies and a bachelor's at Estacio de San University in, also in Brazil in journalism. She is the author of the multi-award winning book, Beaches Unleashed, Performance and Embodied Politics in Favela Funk, that was published by Peter Lang in 2021, which won not one, but two awards. Multiple uh, awards were also uh, given to her um, journal articles and book chapters, and has been extremely original and impactful in her studies of communication scholarship in the Latinx and Latin American community. So Raquel, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. So, so tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Yeah, you know, my students sometimes ask me, did you always want to be a professor? It's, I don't think that's the case for most of us, right? Um, no, I wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> and then, you know, after working in the industry locally in Rio, um, after working every Sunday, um, making very little money <laughs> uh, and being exposed to the sort of like politics of um, local networks in Rio, I worked uh, mostly on TV at first, I was kind of disillusioned, right? And it's like, well, I had this naive thought that I could change the world being a journalist. I, I was always, you know, into politics. Um, my grandpa, you know, is someone who fought against the Brazilian dictatorship. Um, you know, him and his brothers were all arrested and um, lost their political rights. So that sort of that identity of doing something that matters was very important in my family. And I thought that journalism was, you know, the, the vehicle for that. 
no, <laughs> not the case at all. Um, so I just started to think pragmatically. I was approaching, you know, the fourth year of my um, undergrad. And I'm like, well, I guess I can do this for another year until I figured out what I'm going to do. And a master's was um, what I decided to do because I wanted to teach. I, I wasn't even thinking about research at that point, right? Like what was, what translated into a career to me was I'm going to get a master's you know, nobody in my family has master's, right? Like my parents didn't have college degrees. So um, for me, it was like, if you have a master's, you can then become uh, a, a college professor, right? Um, so that was it. And I thought that naively, that it's like, this is maybe a more tangible way to, to change the world. Um, and I have probably looked back a couple of times since, but um, persistently, uh, is still, you know, enjoying being a professor, um, definitely enjoy uh, doing research, but I, I really enjoy being in the classroom. Excellent. So I'm guessing you could have stayed as a professor and teach in Brazil, but you came to the U.S. How was the decision to leave Brazil made? Um, it was both impulsive, but also something that I've always wanted to do. Um, like I've always wanted to study abroad, not necessarily come to the US. <laughs> um, and I could never really afford studying abroad. And then I realized that grad school is actually a, an affordable way <laughs> or a more affordable way to study abroad. And, but honestly, I ended up making the decision i did not want to i was not planning to continue with my a phd um i just didn't i was unmotivated at that point um at the time in rio in com studies uh, very few professors studied gender let alone the intersections of gender class um, and race so it was kind of difficult for me. Like I felt um, unmotivated, yeah, and undervalued in a lot of ways. And now, of course, it's different. <laughs> it's very different now, thank goodness. Um, but I met a uh, you know, Mexican-American person and I fell in love at that suddenly. <laughs> like, I'm going <laughs> to apply to universities in the United States. And that's really what brought me to the United States at first. Um, and we're no longer together, but um, I'm thankful that, you know, he, he, he helped me with that transition for sure. And it was a very difficult one. Um, you know, you know, <laughs> right? Um, even though you may think that you're so assimilatable, I guess, right? You're so in touch with American culture, especially that's sort of everywhere. Um, it was a shock, right? It was a, it was a, a difficult transition for sure. So you came to the US and went directly to study at the University of Denver? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I um, defended my MA thesis in 
July, which we had to postpone a few times because of Brazil's games. It was the 2010 World Cup. So, of course, first things first, right? Um, and then in September, I was starting in the, in the University of Denver PhD program. When I applied, I did not have a thesis written and a made thesis written at, at that point. Yeah. So how was... When you go back, right, how do you compare at the time the experience of doing graduate work in Brazil and in the US, in Rio and in Denver? Um, I think there are similarities because, you know, I think doing scholarship, um, it's sort of still premise on some kind of performance of sort of westernness, right? So I think you know those structures are similar in Latin America too. But I did not think my master's environment was nearly as competitive as my PhD environment. Um, there was so much I did not know. Um, and I think there was less space for learning those cultural scripts in the US because I already knew them in Brazil. So I never worried about that, right? But in the US, I think I realized like I I made so many mistakes, right? Like, or um, I just, I was an immigrant. I did not know. <laughs> there was so much I did not know. Um, so that I cannot separate that from my experience in the classroom, for instance, right? From um, being a master's student in Rio and being a PhD student in Denver. Um, it's, yeah, it's hard to detach those things of being, being from the city, right? Well, it's actually um, in Rio's metro area. Uh, it's uh, the University of Niterói that I went to in Rio. So, um, but um, yeah, I think in terms of what we were actually reading for instance is very different very different um Did you elaborate on that yeah uh i think well first of all my, my program was uh, a media journalism program right so i had a class that i read about you know scholarship on journalism for instance i did not that do that at all at the university of denver um I probably read more like traditional cultural studies. Um, I read more like traditional critical theory. It's, there's not, like communication studies, it's a new area, right? So a lot of the foundational texts are not really calm media studies. They're more like cultural studies and all that, right? And and critical theory. So I read more like Deleuze, I read more at Foucault and um, Gramsci and and all that. Um, and here I I read a lot of calm U.S. based calm scholarship, right? So my Denver program was definitely more insular, no doubt, no doubt. More insular in terms of U.S. centric. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. How? I mean, your work has not been US centric, right? So, how do you, did you negotiate, right? Um, conversations about your work, non US centric, in a context that was US centric? 
I think I still, it's not, I no longer struggle with that, but I think I still sort of pay the price for having a work that is not only transnational, but it's also like very interdisciplinary. It's like I really don't fit in anywhere, right? Like it's hard for me to find, you know, um, co-authors or <laughs> things that, as simple as that, because um, it's, yeah, I don't don't have my my pairs here, right? Because my work is not insular, right? It is transnational. And um, I do have really good relationships with other scholars who do transnational work, but they do work that is also, <laughs> they're in similar situations than me, right? So one of the more tangible ways that I have to negotiate that is like, oh, how much context do I have to give every time I have to talk about my work, right? Like basic context right so i've had um issues with like publications saying oh there's too much context here and then you know i added and it's like there's not enough context here it's like what do you want right what is it that you want <laughs> um so i think that part is annoying it's like always having to give up some space to clarify the basics right um and i think in terms of where does my research fit in, right? I think it is it is difficult. Um, right now I'm in a, a critical um, cultural communication program. So my teaching probably is what placed me here and my scholarship too, because I do critical scholarship. But again, what I do is not similar to any of my colleagues' work, for instance, right? So I always feel like sort of a little detached, <laughs> but, you know, keep moving. And I am, you know, as my work transforms, I am trying to engage with U.S. scholarship a little more. <laughs> Let's see how that's going to go. Um, and enjoying the, the, this perspective of, you know, that maintaining my transnational perspective and not becoming this insular U.S. centric scholar. But now you're a professor. When you were a student, how did you come up with the dissertation topic? How did you get support from your committee? How was the process of research and writing? Um, I came with a topic because that's what you're supposed to do in Brazil. You're supposed to have not only a topic, but you're supposed to have a perspective, essentially, right? Um, and I was so unfamiliar with the application process in the U.S. that I had an idea of what I wanted to do, right? Which was in my master's, I studied the gender and class in this women's magazine from the 1960s. So I, you know, went to the National Library and, you know, flipped through pages of ginormous magazines. And I was interested in studying gender. And that process, my advisor, for instance, was not an expert in gender, but he sort of like, learned with me right he was willing to help in my in my master's so i was already very self-reliant and i had to be self-reliant because even you know scholars who are latinos they were you they were u.s born latinos and talking about what i wanted to talk about sometimes 
and say I got I became closer to scholarship on like you know black feminism for instance than Latino studies for my work right um because of the barriers that I'm addressing now that years later I'm able to say well this is actually a barrier for what I'm trying to study right and why is this a barrier right why is this distinction so glaring but not really talked about um so you know I just I was just self-reliant I had good um I had a good community of other immigrants um around me and I yeah I was a very independent student it was hard like looking back now like I I see that there's there was a lot I did not have to go through right um but I I was assumed to have known to know I I had to know but I didn't <laughs> you know so if you were to give advice to your former self uh, now that you've gone through the journey thinking that perhaps other people who are starting in their career who are into pursuing their studies might face not the same but similar circumstances what kind of advice would you give oh, find mentors it's hard to even I mean, as an immigrant, that was unthinkable. But now that's the advice I give. And that I, I also put myself in that role for others, right? Um, There's probably another very fulfilling um, role that I end up, you know, um, taking here in the U.S. because of my experiences is you don't have to go through this. Let's, you know, work on this together. And I think finding mentors... I don't know what else I could have done, right? More than what I did. Like I needed more support and I did not have more support. And I did not know I, I needed more support. I didn't know how to ask. I did not know what mentorship was, right? So I think that that, that would be the, <laughs> the advice is, you know, find mentors. <laughs> So, and then on that note, you are at the National Communication Association. You have some institutional responsibilities having to do with men. Right. I just joined. <laughs> so, so how can this process scale up from the individual relationship to the institutional? What could our institutions do to make mentorship more accessible, more open, uh, more equitable, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think the hard lesson I learned is that it will burn you out, right? Like mentorship and, and filling in that role can be very fulfilling, but also absolutely exhausting, right? Especially if you're in an under-resourced institution, which was the case for me for seven years of my career. Um, so now, only now I am learning the need for these things to be institutionalized, right? It needs to, um, be included in processes of, you know, tenure and promotion, right? Um, it needs to, uh, be including some kind of program that 
in universities sometimes are afraid to do that, available to, for instance, immigrants or faculty of color and so on and so forth. I'm talking about like my university, for instance, there is some um, hesitancy to offer anything that is just for faculty of color. So what happened is that when senior faculty of color found a way to create a, an outside, like a third party organization and then apply for a grant and then serve several institutions, including mine. And I'm learning a lot from that process, right? It's like you, you have something that is, um, you're sort of like paired with a person. And I know, you know, relationships of mentorship cannot really be forced, but I think they can be structured and giving people the opportunity to connect, right? Uh, in my case has been beneficial. I think for the first time ever <laughs> now, you know, many years into my career, I, for the first time have like a formal mentor right? Because of this program, while I'm also informally still mentoring my colleagues here and students, um, etc. Right. Um, so I know how to do that on like on the faculty level, like how to provide mentorship to faculty. But I think universities are still fall, fall short on how to address this when it comes to undergraduate and graduate students, right? The, the sort of mentorship the inequities that arrive, you know, arise from it. Um, that's one thing that, like here, they added to like merit base um, um, awards essentially at the end of the year. But I've never met a single person who has <laughs> received that <laughs> as a result of their, you know, of the hours that we spend in the office when uh, a, a first gen Latina student, um, you know, is microaggressed in the classroom. Right. So there's there's a long way to go, and I'm I'm open and willing to think about what can we do. Right. Very interesting. Now you mentioned several times issues having to do with immigration and transnationalism. You are from Brazil. Um, mm -hmm. You live in the states and you work in the states. Well, I'm 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 assuming based on your curriculum. Um, but your research continues to be uh, about Brazil. Mm -hmm. Brazil has the largest population of African descent outside of Africa. I, I believe it's 53% of population identifies as Black. So, and your work addresses issues of race, right? In addition to class and gender as sort of the main, main trio of factors. How? How has your experience of analyzing, addressing, and centering scholarship on race in a country which has you know, several orders of magnitude more proportion of Black population relative to the states, how, how, how has your experience of doing that work been? And what has been the kind of reception that you've got uh, in the U.S. context uh, for that kind of scholarship? In Kong studies, that's not very, very known. Like people don't think of Brazil and think about blackness immediately, for instance, right? But in many other fields, that is the case, right? Think about history, right? histories of African diaspora, right? Um, it's very rare that a historian of African diaspora doesn't know anything about Brazil. Um, and I think my, my intention was not to 
analyze blackness and anti-blackness in favela funk. That was not my initial intention, right? And I think I am grateful for this experience here that like being exposed to scholarship that helped me reframe that wouldn't, you know, they weren't talking about Brazil in those terms, but the issues with anti-blackness here are so similar, right? That I'm like, oh, that's just like the Brazilian context. And um, one of the things that I do now that I know what I want to talk about and that I'm talking about those racial tensions in Brazil is that I rely on, I try to rely on Brazilian scholars to talk about blackness, for instance, right? Um, and that's something that I've had mixed results, right? Again, I think on the one hand, I am, because I am concerned about anti-blackness in Brazil, my work is perceived as less like Latino. I think that there is that issue because of that differentiation of like, you know, Latinidad is different from blackness. So I think that's one issue in that my work, even though I am professionally affiliated to Latino Com Studies, I've been in that space for a long time. I have expressed that I don't think my work fits. And I think that is a problem of the space, <laughs> okay? I have said that to them, right? I think this is a problem of the space. Um, and I've also had um, reviewers telling me that I had to cite Mulino Guzman to talk about the black women that I was writing about in my paper. And I said, no, because they're not Latinas. <laughs> um, so I think it's part of the challenge of not fitting in anywhere, but I, over time, I've been able to make a good argument, let's say, for why this perspective is important. And I think I've been lucky enough to have my work recognized because of that right? Just sort of like pushing through. Um, yeah, if that answers your questions, it's like mixed, there's mixed reception. Um, uh, and in Brazil, how has your work been received there? So here's the thing, I publish in English. That is a limitation of my work, right? I have not written anything in Portuguese in a long time. Actually, that's not true. I wrote um, a presentation for NCA's first multilingual panel ever, right? Um, that was a really cool experience. I talk about transfeminismo. Um, and it was really, really, really difficult to write that in Portuguese, even though all my sources were Brazilians, right? Were Brazilian transfeministas. Um, but it is... Um, I think my work is under some people's radar, but from time to time, I still get sort of assumed that I am, um, that I'm new to whatever I'm doing because I'm doing in the United States. I will give an example. I was in a group of, a Facebook group of Brazilians and I was, you know, letting people know about my work. Um, and then somebody commented, was like, do you know, this Brazilian woman's work about exactly what you're talking about. And I said, yes, she is my MA advisee, right? <laughs> so 
so I think there's still this disconnect. And I think in part it's because when I left, I did not look back because again, I feel like my work was, you know, not well received at the time. And I know it is different now. I can tell everybody's doing, you know, work on the intersections of race, gender, and sexuality um, and class. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I'm okay in comp studies specifically, okay, media and comp studies, but I'm very happy to just, you know, keep my, uh, my connections or keep developing my connections slowly as they are. And I'm okay with this lack of recognition in Brazil because it's of my own doing, essentially. And and why do you say that? Why do you think? No, what do you say? Why do you think that now everybody's doing work on race, gender, ethnicity? Visible. It's visible. The makeup of the departments changed. They are hiring people who are doing that work. Um, it is absolutely visible. Right, but why, why do you think that trend is taking place? <sighs> I mean, I could give my non-expert opinion, which is um, it probably is the result of like the first, you know, Lula government, uh, you know, inclusion uh, in, in universities. And then inevitably it, it will change the makeup of scholarship, right? Institutions, not drastically, but it will change enough that it is noticeable, right? So I think... I think that's kind of what happened is that more folks, right, um, had the opportunity to enter public universities, especially in Brazil. And we're seeing the results now. There are scholars now, right? Because years and years of exclusion of keeping people out, like we're having you know, policies that keep people out and while keeping white folks, you know, light-skinned, some fathers in, so I think it's it's some of it is that. And during the Bolsonaro years, <laughs> I mean, extended as of you know three days ago, four days ago. Right, um, former President Jair Bolsonaro. Thank goodness. Um, I mean, I wonder what's going to happen for seven years from now if there's going to be a gap because there was a purposeful, deliberate dismantling of higher education, of free, right, public higher education in Brazil during his years. Of course, he hates the university, right, <laughs> the public university. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know what, you know, I'm glad it was only, you know, one term for years, but I'm sure we're still going to see the effects of that in a few years. Now, the Bolsonaro presidency overlapped for some time with the Trump presidency and other illiberal presidencies worldwide. This is something that connects Brazil and the US. Um, but in general, as you have alluded to several times, there is there has been historically a little bit of a disconnect between Latin America and the US. Mm. And, and even between sort of Latin America and, and, and Latinidad. Right. Um, um, yeah, here and there. I'm thinking like 
that you know the sort of leftist wave before this current one right of like the early 2000s i feel like there was like a very strong discourse of of union of like i you know i remember being a young person identifying as like latino or is latin american very proudly i don't know if that, that was your your example right. so what so how has that impacted the field and where is that conversation at in your opinion I don't know. Um, like, I don't know what that means or what, what that looks like in terms of scholarship, right? Since my, my own scholarship have been, like I said, I have sort of detached it from Latin America, right? Because in the US, it's sort of still confined. And in com studies, I'm going to say, Come studies does that and not say not generalize. Um, I don't know what that means, but I'm seeing, for instance, um, more focus on you know the Black Caribbean, the Black Latino Caribbean, for instance, right? And I think that's that's pretty great. Or this, you know, the recognition that blackness and anti-blackness exist in Latin America, and that again we think about. Latin America, not in terms of, you know, whomever is the light-skinned mestizo in media right now, but as a very complicated makeup, you know, that is the result of coloniality. It is still, you know, has the, endures the effects of coloniality. Um, I do wonder what's going to happen now, right? That there's, because I think when there's this waves of, of right-wing waves, Latin America sort of dissembles a little bit as like an identity, right? Because I think even the idea of identifying as, as Latino Americano, I think it's kind of connected to progressive progressive discourse. I don't know if you have this, um, right? Um, okay. is because I think right-wing discourse is very, it's usually nationalist, right? So you sort of push everybody aside and Bolsonaro government did that a lot. Like essentially hated everybody else in Latin America, right? Um, love the U.S., of course, um, but the U.S. is patriotic like that, right? Insular and all those things. So um, I tend to think that maybe we'll see a new wave or some transformations in scholarship as the you know the politics in in Latin America change again, you know, until the next wave and etc. <laughs> do tend to be cyclical so mm -hmm. so on that note as as we go from one world to the other if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change what would you wish for i have a list of names here no, i'm just kidding <laughs> People like to disappear. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I really am. I think what I wish is that the field was, it would actually fulfill this calls for transnationalism, for instance, right? <laughs> it's like, can we be less insular? Because people like me, right? Like we sort of pay the professional price for that, right? In which like our scholarship doesn't feel like it fits anywhere because comm studies is very, very insular. 
right? It's very self-centered. And I, I really do wish that we were more or actually transnational. That that would be my my wish if I could, you know, snap my fingers and change things. Excellent. Thank you very much, Raquel. That's a great wish with which to end this conversation. Thank you to our listeners for staying with us uh, through the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of the Cafe Latinx once again. Thank you very much, Raquel. Thank you, Paolo. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Suenzo.